Good morning. <clears throat> I need three hands for this. Okay, here we go. Wow. What a way to come back, huh? Um, hi, my name's Paul Chihamba, and I have been gone for three months, and so I just, uh, I'm out of practice here, lifting up music stands. Um, I uh, had the privilege of being on sabbatical for three months. This is one of those wonderful gifts that CPC uh, gives to its pastors here, and so I'm grateful for that, refreshed, ready to be back. Um, been following the sermon series on the prophets. It's been a fascinating experience to, to listen in and to, to join in on that. Uh, early in this series, John Crosby spoke about the prophet Isaiah, and when he did, he mentioned that Isaiah is such a, an important book that it needed to be split into two parts, and so this is part number two. Uh, you also recall John spoke about how Isaiah, if you pay attention, you can discern three distinct styles, three voices, if you will. There's uh, scholars refer to first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah. And uh, today we're going to be taking a closer look at a passage during that middle section, the, the exilic period um, of, of the book of Isaiah. And so a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to jump right in. Chapter 49 of Isaiah. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of the rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and fill, find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, 
the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. See, I have engraved on the palm of my hands. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah, a mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord is prophesied, is predicted. And it's said that this servant is going to bring salvation into the world. And, and the New Testament writers identify this servant as Jesus Christ. So in this passage, we uh, start out in verses 1 through 13 with this sweeping, this, this panoramic, comprehensive statement of the salvation that God is bringing into the world through the servant. And now if you look carefully at this, you'll see there's this movement here. There's this movement of a salvation that is, that is soon to come, a salvation that is eventual, and then a salvation that is far off. In verse 5 and verse 8, he's saying, speaking to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon, he's saying that God is going to bring the Jews back to the land, and what was lost is going to be restored. But then as you read a little bit further, he goes beyond that. In verse 6, which is so striking, he says, is it too small a thing? It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take it even further than that. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He says, I have greater plans. I have greater ideas of salvation than just the return of the Jews from exile, as great as that's going to be. I'm going to bring salvation to all the nations of the earth. And then he elaborates and expands on this. You see it described down in verse 12 where he says that when through the servant God begins to gather his people together, notice they don't just come from, from the east, from Babylon, which is where they would come from if they're coming back to Jerusalem. But they come from the north, they come from the west, they come from Aswan, which is in the south, which means, in effect, that eventually, God says, I'm going to bring my, my salvation to all people. I'm going to draw believers from every nation. I'm going to create an international, a, a multicultural people of God where everything, all suffering, all misery, all disease, even death itself is done away with. But then suddenly, abruptly even, we hit verse 14. This awkward switch. The tone shifts. In verse 14, 15, and 16, we have this, this fascinating, this skeptical response. It says, but Zion said. Now, Zion is a way of referring to, to Israel, the people of Israel. So the temple, you know, has been destroyed when the Babylonians hauled them off uh, into exile. And so now, in spite of this, this amazing uh, this description, this, this technicolor, vivid description of salvation that's promised in the first 13 verses of this chapter here. In verse 14, we see Israel saying in a skeptical voice, but I don't feel loved. All these promises of, of loving action, I'm not feeling it. And in verse 15 and 16, we see God responding. And I want to look at at this, because I think verse 
14 is, is very typical of often where we find ourselves, if we're honest. So let's take a look. First, there's verse 14, which is a hard, painful question. Then verse 15, which is a, a response to that question. And then verse 16, which is a, a remedy for the pain. First, uh, let's look at the painful question. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. All these amazing promises in the first 13 verses. But here we, we have the people's interruption, their, their interjection. Here's what they're saying. He's saying, salvation soon? Salvation eventually? Salvation someday? But what about now? I feel forsaken now. I have needs now. I'm surrounded by tragedy now. Look at Zion. Zion is in shambles. It's in ruins now. And, and, and the temple, well, the temple was our assurance that you loved us. But now that the temple is gone, I guess you don't love us. What a fascinating, what a visceral exchange. Do you notice that they don't actually, in, in verse 14, they don't say, we don't believe all of these predictions. They don't say these things are never going to happen. That's not what they say. I, I think they believe it. Uh, there's no indication that they don't believe it. But, but here's the thing. It doesn't affect them. It, it doesn't affect them where they live, where they are. It's possible, I think, for, for the human heart to live in the presence of truth, truth that you believe, truth that you affirm, and it not affect you the way you feel, the way you live. It's possible to say with your head, I believe, I believe. I believe in the God of love. I believe in the God revealed in Scripture. But without it affecting the way you live, the way we, uh, we, we are, the way we, we feel about ourselves. Do you ever feel that way? Perhaps sometimes you see stuff inside you and, and you say, well, I don't know how God would love me. I don't know how God would love me when I think about what I feel or what I am or what I've done. Or maybe it's external for you. Maybe it's an unanswered prayer or, or disappointment. Maybe you're experiencing an inner conflict where, where your head believes, but, but you still can't get your heart to, to make that, that transition. And of course, when, when things are, are kind of going well, the, the fact that there might be a disconnect doesn't necessarily create a problem for you. But, but then the minute that things go bad, the minute that things go south, then suddenly this painful question, I'm forsaken. I feel forgotten. No matter what, what the Bible says, I, I don't feel it. And so we find ourselves, friends, uh, in this verse 14, confronted with this full-blown tension, this, this painful question. So how does God deal with this? How does, how does God deal with, with despair, this sense of forsakenness, this sense of feeling forgotten? Well, as I said, there's three, uh, two things that he does. He, he gives an answer to the question, and then he, he gives a remedy for the pain. First, the answer to the question. In verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget. 
Now, this wonderful verse, I, I, want, I want you to see the principles that, that are lifted up here about how God deals with, with a person who is who's despondent, who is, who is in despair. First of all, I want you to see something that, that God doesn't do. God doesn't say, well, come on, chin up, suck it up. In fact, verse 15 and 16, we see God actually turning aside and, and listening, engaging, allowing himself to be interrupted. Now, if you're looking for some great theological discourse, it doesn't get much better than this. This is Isaiah. This is prophecy. And he's going along, and, and suddenly, in comes verse 14, crashing in. Yeah, I don't feel this. I don't believe it. It's, it's like, like, here's this great professor, and he's, he's lecturing in class, and, and then somebody raises their hand and says, oh, excuse me, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't buy that. And what does the professor do? Ignore it? Say, uh, excuse me? That's not what God does. God turns aside, and he takes the interruption, this outburst, seriously. He doesn't just say, suck it up, man. He lets himself be interrupted. He attends to it. He, he deals with it. Uh, but the other thing that I want us to see is he doesn't just give emotional support. You know, he gives a, a, a real challenging kind of a truth. He, he appeals to the mind. He, he gives him a, a, a theological metaphor, if you will. Uh, on the one hand, to say, I want you to see how like a nursing mother I am, but on the other hand, how unlike a nursing mother I am. That's a metaphor. What is God like? Well, God at this point is saying, I want you to imagine, okay? I want you to imagine. I want you to think. It's thinking, yes. It's doctrine. It's theology, but it's thinking that's designed to get at your heart. This verse 15 is is God saying, I want you to bring my truth, but I want you to, to Take that truth and make that 18-inch journey from your head to your heart. He says, I want you to think. I'm I'm going to give you a a very serious, theologically challenging idea. But it's going to be an image of the most intimate thing you can imagine. That is, I want you to think, and I want you to think, and I want you to think until that thinking begins to affect the feelings and direct the feelings and the affections of your heart. But now let's, uh, let's take a look not just at the idea of how God deals with this fear, but we want to look at how he actually does it in this particular case. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? She may forget, but, she'll never, but I'll never forget you. So God wants us to reflect on the nature of that special bond between a nursing mother and, and her suckling infant. And, and there's a lot of things that you can draw from this, but I'm just going to uh, pull out three things that I want you to think about, three reasons why a mother can't forget her infant and why the bond between a mother and her baby is so strong and maybe stronger than any other human bond. And the first is this. A nursing mother cannot physically forget her infant. Now, I'm not claiming to be an expert in this arena, but I am married to a woman who is a former nursing mother, so I I have a little bit of of, uh, insight into this. You don't need an alarm to say, oh, it's time to start nursing the baby, do you? Because there's this feeling of, of discomfort if you don't nurse the baby because the milk comes in. 
because of this hormone called prolactin. That the more you nurse, the more you have to nurse, right? The more you nurse, the more the milk comes in. In other words, a mother can't forget her child because physically, the mother's physical nature moves her towards the child. That's the one thing. But it's not just that. It's not just that the mother can't physically forget. She can't forget emotionally because nursing just doesn't just release prolactin, which, is a, uh, which produces milk, but it also produces a hormone called oxytocin, which, um, which is a chemical in your body which, which makes you feel delight and, and, and incredible contentment, especially as you look at the baby. And so not only does the mother, uh, can't she, can she not forget her child physically, she can't forget her child emotionally. There are these, these enormous, these huge forces that inside of her that move her towards her child. And as a result of this, a mother's love for a child isn't just physical. It isn't just emotional. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. Your entire life is revolved around your baby 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You never forget. You can never be away all the time, all the time. How unconditional, how, how sacrificial, how indestructible is a mother's love for her child. And now God says, now I want you to compare that to me. Now here's the punchline. Though she may forget, but I will not forget you. What does that mean? A mother may forget. What does that mean? Well, here's what God's saying, I, I think. I'm both like and unlike a mother. Here's how I am unlike a mother. Human mothers forget. Human parents are flawed in spite of hormones, in spite of all kinds of things that drive you towards the infant, in spite of everything. Some human mothers abandon their children. And eventually, you see all human mothers eventually leave us. They get older, they forget, they eventually die. Everyone dies. I'll lose my mother someday, so will you. Mother love seems unconditional, it seems indestructible, but it's not because human beings are not indestructible. God says, but my love will not be destroyed. My love is unconditional, it's indestructible. Well, let's go on. God is saying, you see, mother love, it's nothing compared to my love for you. You see her physical love, you see the, her, her very, how her very being moves towards you. You know that everything about my glory, everything about my faithfulness, my, my very nature, it compels me powerfully to you. I'm a God of love. I'm a God of faithfulness. I love all that I've created. For God to compare and then to say, I'm infinitely greater than a nursing mother, when you know that a nursing mother just is absolutely gushes and dotes over her child. And, and God, God has the audacity to say, that's just a faint glimpse of my delight in you. But guess what? God's not done. Because ultimately, this is still just talk. So here's the painful question, right? There's the, the good answer to the question, really a great answer to the question, an argument, yet it's still, at the end of the day, just talk. An argument, 
We have to get to verse 16 if you're, if you're going to see a remedy for the pain and, and not just an answer to the question. And here's why. Because at the end of the day, what, what really convinces someone that they're loved is not talk but action. Even the Bible says in 1 John, it says, Beloved, let's not love in word only, but in deed and in truth. Isn't that right? You know, when you're, when you're trying to find out, does, this, does somebody love me or not? Words are important. They're very important. Words of affection are really important, but what really we want to see is action. If you only have words and not action, it, in the end, you, you don't believe the person loves you, and, and that is a problem, and that's a problem here. Because words, 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 but I don't feel love. I, I feel forsaken. You know what forsaken means? Forsaken means you're not doing anything for me. I want to see action. You see how this creates a problem? Now let's stick with this metaphor that the Bible is giving us here about a parent and a child. I've raised four kids, and one of the most frustrating things about being a parent is in some ways, you know, the infant, as absolutely draining as the infant is, how you completely orient your whole life around that infant, you know, and you, you know, when they're really little. That's not quite as frustrating, though, as when the child gets old enough to actually talk back, right? Because by the time your child is, what, five, six, seven, eight, you know, you're already completely, completely wound up around this child, you know, oriented your life completely around them. You've completely made sacrifices. Your whole life has changed. But it's as if your sacrifices are completely invisible to these kids. Child doesn't understand what, what you've done in your sacrifices, just the way things are. You know, it's just like a fish in water, right? And as far as the kid is concerned, grown-ups are there to meet their every need. That's what grown-ups are for. That's why God made grown-ups. And there are moments, there are times when you, when you cross the will of the child, you know, when you don't give them something you want. You know, yes, I, you know, I know, you can't eat that. You, you can't go there. You can't do that. You can't visit him or her. And the kid screams out, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implied, you don't love me. And when they do that, this is what you want to say to them, you little twerp. <laughs> the sacrifices I've made for you are invisible to you. The, the most crucial sacrifices, the, the most crucial deeds of love that I've done for you are not the things that you're asking for right now. But don't you see that that's what we do with God? Don't you see that we read the Bible and we say, words, 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 but what have you done for me lately? Why aren't you doing something for me now? You don't love me because you're not answering my prayer now. And through this text, God's saying, because he's asking you to think, through, through this metaphor, it takes a long time, it takes thinking, but if you do, it'll change your way of thinking, your outlook, your life, because God says to you, you haven't seen the extent, you haven't seen the magnitude of the sacrifice that I've made for you. And the most crucial deed of love that really matters is not the one that you're worried about most right now. What is it? Well, it's in verse 16. In verse 16, the metaphor changes and says, See, I've, I've engraved you on the palm of my hand. Now, at first, this looks like a, another lovely metaphor of God's devotion, right? 
Now here's the reason why. It's, it's sometimes true in ancient times that, that the name of a master might be tattooed on the servant. Name of a master tattooed on the servant, but never, ever, ever was the name of the servant tattooed on the master. It just never happened. Because that would signify, that would mean that the master was devoted to the servant. And of course, that is what we have here, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful? Uh, another metaphor of God's love. But it's different here. You know why? It doesn't say tattooed. It says, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. And that word engrave is a very specific Hebrew word that means engraved with a hammer and a chisel or a spike. And now, suddenly, the metaphor isn't so pretty. It's awful, actually. Why in the world would you conjure up the image of someone out of love letting people take a hammer and a chisel and a spike right into the palm of their hands? Isn't that horrible? Yes, it's horrible. Doesn't that make you cringe? Yes, it makes you cringe. Isn't that crazy? No, it's not crazy. Centuries later, there was a man named Thomas. Thomas was like this guy here in verse 14, filled with doubts. He says, I can't be sure. I can't be sure. His friends were saying, hey, he's risen. He's risen. And Thomas says, I'm not so sure. I don't, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not buying it. I, I need, I need some, some evidence, some proof. Filled with anxiety and doubt, he couldn't be sure. And what happens? Jesus Christ appears to him. And he says, look, look at the palms of my hands. He says, see my love for you. Look what's on the palms of my hands. Friends, this isn't just talk. This is action. Jesus says, on the cross, I was forsaken. On the cross, I was forsaken. I got the forsakenness that you feel that you deserve so that now, no matter what you do, God will never forsake you. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Again, from these passages in Isaiah, it's an amazing demonstration of your saving grace. We know that we don't really know the gospel. We, 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 we know the gospel well enough to know what we don't know. We don't understand it. Its power hasn't really seeped in and released itself into our lives. But we see here, God, more ways for us to do that. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us, even as we're putting ourselves under your word, God. We ask, God, that you would drive it deep down into our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.